You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Gideon. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Let me explain why, first of all. Well, let's start with me, actually. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both <clears throat> streaming video and the audio podcast. You're Gideon Rosen, chairman of the chairperson, I should say, of the philosophy department at Princeton University and a philosopher of some renown. Anything you want to plug? Uh, you know, you've got this kind of textbook thing, right? I will plug the Norton Introduction to Philosophy, mm-hmm. which is a general textbook for introductory philosophy courses. Um the main angle of which is that it incorporates both classic readings from the tradition and about 25 new essays written by contemporary philosophers uh, designed to bring introductory students up to the cutting edge. So the idea is that philosophy is one of those subjects where an introductory course can get you pretty close to what people are thinking about these days. The problem is that what philosophers write is, for the most part, unreadable by people who aren't uh, totally saturated in the subject. So the point of the textbook is to include some things that are written by contemporary big shots um, for college freshmen or for any interested layperson. Um, They will give you some sense, not a completely representative sense of what's going on in philosophy today. And you call it unreadable with all due respect for the colleagues who produced it. Absolutely. There is always this trade-off when you're doing anything in um, in academia or in any part of advanced thought. Every discipline has a technical language. In order to say anything, you got to presuppose something. So either you start at the beginning and take it really slowly, or you just jump into the middle. And there's nothing wrong with jumping into the middle if your audience is already there with you. And that's how it is for the most part with the kind of writing that we do. But that makes a lot of what we write pretty inaccessible and the academic incentives for slightly more accessible writing aren't always there. So this textbook is designed to close that gap. Okay. And we're going to try to present something accessibly today. Right. Um, We're going to talk about free will determinism, or there is a door number three (laughs) compatibilism which maintains that that the seeming conflict between free will and determinism is only seeming. I've never understood compatibilism. Apparently, it's a big favorite among actual philosophers, including you, right? Most of the time, yeah. My main thought about this is that the question whether free will and determinism are compatible is a hard question. It's not settled by the definition of free will or the definition of determinism. It's an open question and one we struggle with and have to clarify. But um, the important thing is to understand the setup in such a way that you can see that as a hard question and not an easy one. Okay. Now, speaking of setup, uh, we've thrown around the terms free will and determinism, but maybe just for people who haven't been uh, just bathed in this stuff lately, we should quickly recap. I mean, one way I usually put this is to say that uh, if, if on the one hand you rely on your introspective intuition, that is to say you reflect on how your own mind seems to work, you tend to believe in free will because it seems like you have a choice. Right now I could ask you one question or another and the future is undetermined and I'm the one who's going to decide. 
On the other hand, if you, if you rely on your intuitions about how the world out there works, you may become a determinist because we think of the world as being this kind of mechanistic place. Everything that happens has a cause that made it happen, and each given a set of causal conditions, only one thing can emerge from them. That's the that's kind of an intuition that's commonly shared. And if you, if you follow that set of intuitions, then you might think, well, the rest of history is actually inevitable, even if we can't predict it. And the, and the feeling that we can influence it is actually an illusion. Is that a fair rendering of the traditionally conceived tension between free will and determinism? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, so the way I sometimes put it is, when you're just going about your business, making ordinary sorts of decisions, it seems to you as if you have a kind of control over what you do and over what happens. That's a feeling that's just somehow built into the experience of deliberating and choosing. So pick a trivial choice, uh, you know, raise your hand or not in the next two seconds. There, you didn't. <laughs> as you were, that's just because I'm slow. Yeah, you're a little slow. Yeah, as you were thinking about it, um, and this is true for little choices you make, whether to have for lunch or for bigger choices you make, um, you know, whether to take a job or something like that. As you're thinking about the choice, it seems to you that you have options. It seems to you that you could do one thing or another, and it seems to you that nothing has so far settled what you're going to do, and nothing will settle it until you make up your mind. So that's how things feel. And that thought is in tension with an idea that may not be intuitive, but which you certainly get from uh, certain versions of science, where it was at one point thought to be a momentous and deep discovery that nature is governed by the kinds of laws that absolutely fix what's going to happen given the initial setup. So fix the complete state of the universe. Got some now. Where all the particles are, how they're moving, what the forces acting on them are. And at one point, it seemed, science was telling us, once you fixed all that, then the iron laws of nature allow only one possible future. And if that's true, since you're part of nature, it's just not so that your choices and your actions weren't settled in advance. They were settled by the state of the universe in the distant past, together with the laws of nature. So there's this tension between the kinds of openness that the future seems to have when you're deliberating and the way the universe seems to be, at least according to some versions of that kind of physics. Okay. And one of the stakes of this whole question of whether there is free will or we live in a determined universe, um, or door number three, both are kind of true, um, is, is the, the issue of moral responsibility. It is commonly intuited that it's only legitimate to blame people for things and punish them. And, and it's only just, I guess, to punish them for things if they did those things of their own free will, if they did the things that are deemed bad of their own free will. That's at least a common way of looking at it. And I I gather that uh, champions of compatibilism believe, at least in many cases, that um, you you compatibilism offers you a way to say you are a determinist and yet preserve uh, a fairly traditional notion of moral responsibility. Is that fair? Right. So there are two 
Compatibilism means two things. Sometimes it's understood to be the thesis that free will and determinism are compatible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's understood to be the thesis that moral responsibility and determinism are compatible. Mm. Those aren't exactly the same thing. No. To say that people are morally responsible is to say that it's fair or just to blame them and to punish them and to hold them responsible in other ways. So when you say that somebody is morally responsible, you're making an ethical claim. Here's this guy who did this thing. It is fair, just, morally defensible to hit him with certain kinds of sanctions for what he did. That's the moral responsibility claim. And one can then ask the question, if his actions and choices were determined in advance by things over which he had no control, is it fair to hold him responsible in that way? We just ask that question without using the phrase free will at all. And since that phrase is a source of a lot of confusion, it's often clearer to say, that's what we're interested in. Mm-hmm. We want to know whether it can be fair to hold people responsible if their choices are determined in advance. Let's ask that. We don't have to talk about free will if that's what we're interested in. No, although it is a very common intuition that if they could not have done otherwise, then it's not fair to blame them for things. And most people would equate that with saying there is no free will. So they are they are tightly interwoven, but I, I'll, I'll take your... I'll take you uh, as being correct that there are some virtues to skipping the, the word, the term free will. We should say, by the way, I think you have your own, a kind of distinctive take on compatibilism that we may have time to get to. Is that, is that fair? You've got your own, but, but I mean, we should, we should complete the, the, the kind of tutorial uh, on compatibilism 101 first, but you do have your own spin on this, right? Right. So, I go back and forth, and I'll tell you why I go back and forth, on the question whether moral responsibility and determinism are compatible. I have other reasons, independent of the determinism question, for thinking that even if moral responsibility and determinism are compatible, we shouldn't be blaming people as confidently as we normally do. We should be cautious and even skeptical about whether the people we're inclined to blame are in fact responsible for what they do. Because in real cases, there may be other things about the case. Not that the action was determined in advance, but other features of the case that would render blame unwarranted. So there are lots of excuses, features of human action that get us off the hook for the wrong things that we do. One might be, I couldn't help it, I was determined in advance, I was a puppet of the universe. That might be something that gets us off the hook. But there are other things that can also get you off the hook. For example, I didn't really know what I was doing, I didn't understand the situation, I didn't mean anything by it, I didn't act with the kind of ill will that's normally necessary if we're to blame. These other considerations that may be able to get us off the hook can kick in even if our actions are, in every other respect, free, undetermined. So my distinctive take, which we may get to, is that we should be hyper-cautious, skeptical about whether people are, in fact, morally responsible for their conduct, regardless of whether they are free or determined. Okay. Uh... That's enough. I'll try to make that clearer. Okay, so we will get to that. The, we should say that um, 
you know, compatibilism isn't the only way of reconciling a belief in determinism with the belief that people should be punished. You can take the view that it's it's never just that people be punished. It's never a good thing in and of itself, but it's a it's a necessity if you're going to keep society uh, running in a in a in a way that well finish the sentence however you want that maximizes utility or whatever. You you can believe as I do. In fact, well, actually, I'm agnostic on free will, but but. When I'm feeling deterministically about the universe, uh, my view is, well, even so, even if it's a completely determined universe, we do, as a practical matter, have to punish people uh, because otherwise there would be more murders and robberies and so on. Um, so, so, but, but, but it's something different that compatibilists are saying. They're not just saying that the practical effects of punishment are so desirable that you have to do it even though it's regrettable in some sense in each case they're 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 saying that no there's actually a kind of justice or something to it in the individual cases leaving aside its consequences right right so if the gods are going to destroy the world unless we offer up a sacrifice then maybe tragically we have no choice but to offer up the sacrifice that doesn't mean the sacrifice deserves it it means despite the fact that the sacrifice doesn't deserve it, it's all things considered okay to throw her into the volcano or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If the best we can do for punishment and the other forms of moral sanction that we're talking about is to understand them in those terms as tragic necessities, then that's an interesting result. No one deserves it. No one's being treated fairly when they're punished. It's just that as a price for um, keeping society up and running. This is the kind of thing we need to do. That's very different from the thought that if you knowingly break the law, you've got no complaint. You are not being treated unjustly or unfairly in any way if we have to lock you up as a deterrent to others or to give you what you deserve. Right. So the question is how we should think about punishment. Yeah, punishment of some form probably is a social necessity. But is it fair? Is it just? Or is it one of those tragic necessities? So, so one kind of litmus test thought experiment is there's somebody on an, on an island somewhere, may have done something horrible in any event, some crime, could be a war criminal. Nobody knows they're there. They're never going to return to civilization and no one is ever going to find out whether you have the option of punishing them, and but no one's ever going to find out whether they were punished. So there's not going to be a deterrent effect. No one's going to know. It's just between you and the person. So uh, if you believe that retribution is a moral good, then you would punish them, even though it will have no good effect on society. But if you're if you're a determinist who believes punishment is always a regrettable necessity, you would not bother to punish them at all. That that isolates the thing, right? Almost. <laughs> there, are, there are two views about punishment, and it's important to distinguish them in this context. One is the view you just described, hardcore retributivism. That's the view that says punishment of the guilty is good in itself, even if it's not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. The other view says when you have freely and responsibly committed a crime or done something wrong. You have thereby licensed us to punish you. It is not an injustice to punish you, but we should only do it if it does some good. Okay. So on that view, which is much closer to a view that I like, 
Um, if you've got your person who's on an island somewhere and punishing them would do no good whatsoever, mm-hmm. if they're responsible for what they did, it would not be an injustice to punish them. But there's no point in doing it unless it's part of some larger practice that would do some good. Okay, so it's kind of the difference between saying retribution is a moral good and saying it's not a moral bad. Exactly. And but and but in American jurisprudence, I gather it's the harsher view that is enshrined, right? I mean, retribution is considered a moral good. I mean, every once in a while, a judge will say, "You just, you know, it's just good that I give you this this particularly harsh punishment." And, and they would be they would they would be justified in doing that under under standard reckoning. Yeah, American law doesn't have an official view about this sort of thing. When judges. Uh, sound off on the reasons for imposing punishment, one of the things they're allowed to say is that retributive justice is um, the justification for doing things this way. Mm -hmm. But um, whenever they say that, there is always also something else they could say. Mm -hmm. So there are occasionally cases where someone, yeah, they committed the crime and they've got no defense, but They've suffered a lot along the way, and they were otherwise good in the community and so on. The victims don't want them punished. No one in particular wants them punished, but there they are. They didn't put up a defense. They were convicted. What's the judge going to do? The judge can say, I am punishing you not for the sake of giving you what you intrinsically deserve and not necessarily for the sake of deterring others. I'm punishing you because fairness under the law requires that similar cases be treated similarly. So that's the reason for punishing, even in these cases, that doesn't presuppose that there's any intrinsic good to the suffering of the guilty. But you're right. Judges are allowed to say, we're doing this because people who stepped across the line deserve to be slapped back. Okay. So now let's proceed to the part of the conversation where I explain why compatibilism makes no sense to me and you try to enlighten me. Um, uh, first, one more footnote. I mean, w- w- people, somebody may have been thinking about quantum physics here. Every time we talk about determinism, they may be thinking, some of our viewers or listeners may be thinking, don't you understand? Quantum physics shows us it's not a completely determined universe. True. <clears throat> I mean, I guess it's actually just some dispute over that. But in any event, um, the, uh, the standard reckoning is what's going on instead of determinism is what you could call true randomness. So, you know, a particle will come up heads or tails. It's truly randomly determined. I think most people who think about these things would say, well, okay, but that's not, that doesn't add up to free will and, 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 is, and just doesn't bear in any uh, intelligible way on the question of moral responsibility. So we're just putting that aside. We're granting that they're right about that, but it's, we don't consider it relevant, right? Good. If we're doing this really systematically, we would have one discussion about whether we can be responsible under determinism and another discussion about whether we can be responsible under indeterminism. That sort of um, real quantum indeterminism raises separate questions, but for the reasons you were getting at, probably doesn't help. So there's a what looks like a knockdown argument form which says, if determinism is true, we're not responsible because we can't help doing what we do. If indeterminism is true, then we're not responsible because our choices are like coin flips over which we have no control. Those are the only two possibilities. So either way, we're not responsible. That's the argument that. Okay. Really. So, so let's, let's tackle the version of compatibilism that does mention free will. In other words, the claim that determinism or free will and free will are compatible. 
Now, I just don't get it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand because I take the assertion of free will to mean that the future is not determined and, and that to be just embedded in the concept and to be the reason that we think we can hold you morally responsible for what you do because right before you did it, it could have gone either way uh, depending on how you exercise your free will. And if, in fact, it could have gone either way, the future wasn't inevitable, then I would say we don't live in a deterministic universe. I'm sure you've run into this objection. This is a common intuition, right? Yeah, this is more than just an intuition. If you define free will by saying a person has free will on an occasion just in case their choices aren't determined, then free will and determinism are incompatible by definition. You're right. You're right to find that mysterious because there's no way that could be true. Suppose we define free will instead, as you did earlier, as the thought that um, when you acted, you could have done otherwise. Oh, I thought I just did. I don't see the difference between Ah, that. good. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been a useful, uh, a useful little tool in your expository train here. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'm very good at that. Talk about when we say that your action wasn't determined in advance, we're speaking in a fairly, um, you know, highfalutin metaphysical key. When we say I could have had. I could have been a contender. Yeah. We're speaking ordinary English. Right. People who take compatibilism of this kind seriously think the following two things could both be true. Your choices were determined in advance, but you could have made a different choice. <laughs> and that's the... Those people are confused. I am not. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're going to have to elaborate on what they're thinking when they say that. All right, so let's think about the things that you can and cannot do. So could is just the past tense of can, so we can do it in the present tense. Here are some things that you can do now. You can raise your right hand, you can stand up, you can walk out of the room, you can't flap your arms and fly to the moon, you can't lift a truck. If you were paralyzed, then we should say you can't walk, but you're not paralyzed, so you can walk. These are true, ordinary claims about what you sitting there now can do. So here's something I just said. You can walk. Or you could have walked out of the room 10 minutes ago. What am I saying when I say that? I'm saying something like, you have all the equipment required for doing that kind of thing. A functioning nervous system, a brain hooked up to your body in the right sorts of ways. The door is not locked. You're not in chains. All of these features of your circumstances are compatible with you're standing up and walking out of the room. So when I say you could have walked out of the room, in the sense in which someone who is, say, paralyzed doesn't have that power, that's the kind of thing I'm saying about you. But that could be true of you, even if physical determinism is true. Because physical determinism doesn't mean you're paralyzed right now. It doesn't mean you're in chains right now. Those kinds of impediments to walking out of the room just aren't there. So you could have walked out of the room, even if physical determinism is true. 
Right. But I would attribute uh, your the, the sense of self-satisfaction that I sense in you at this moment. Is <laughs> having, like, having well, knock down <laughs> argument to, to the precision imprecision of human language to begin with. I mean, when we say, uh, I, when I say I can walk, um, what we mean is that there are circumstances under which I will walk. There, there are, and, and these are, and these are circumstances that do sometimes apply. And, uh, and, but in the real world, they include circumstances that are opaque to us and that we can't, uh, really, you know, so it may feel to me like I can, that like I can walk, get up and walk in a minute. I can say I can get up and walk in a minute. And it's certainly true that. I have the capability such that given circumstance, sets of circumstances that could well apply in a minute, I will get up and walk. But I, right now I have no way of knowing whether the circumstances will apply because I, because by circumstances, I mean to include the state of my brain, which will impinge on my motor activity. Right. And, 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 uh, so I rest my case. <laughs> Let's say that given that you're uh, not now paralyzed or in chains, you have the capacity to walk. You're capable of walking. Yeah, you're capable of walking. When I attribute to that, that sort of capacity or capability to you, I'm just attributing to you a sort of gross capacity. It's compatible with your gross physiology and gross features of your circumstances that you do these things. You do not have, let's say, the fine-grained capacity to walk, given that you are now in a certain highly determinate brain state that doesn't involve the choice to get up and walk. So you have the gross capacity to walk, but not the fine-grained capacity to walk right now. Okay. Right? When we attribute abilities and capacities to people in everyday life, we're probably usually attributing gross capacities to them. Well, because we're speaking casually and loosely, that's my point. I I mean, the case, the case, the anti-free will uh, deterministic argument has always depended, hasn't it? on reference to, in some sense or another, fine-grained causal forces in the sense that they are things we don't understand well enough to entirely predict on the basis of, kind of? Compatibilists resisting that move have generally said, once we've distinguished, so it's not just sloppy talk to say that you have the capacity to walk. Meaning by that, you're not paralyzed during chains. That's true. So it's, it is a, capacity is like that are kind of easy to have. It's an undemanding sense of capacity, but it's a kind of capacity you really do have. And maybe if determinism is true, there are other capacities or capabilities, those fine-grained ones that you lack. In the fine-grained sense, if you're not doing something, then at that moment, you're incapable of doing it. 
in the coarse grain sense, that's not so. But ordinary capacities really are coarse grained in that sense. You can speak English, you can't speak Swahili. Mm-hmm. And when I said you can speak English, that was true of you even when you weren't talking. That's a coarse grained ability or capacity. Now the question is a substantive one. What kind of capacity is necessary for moral responsibility? The coarse grained kind, which you definitely have, or the fine grained kind, which maybe you don't have? And compatibilists say, if you drill down the capacities that really matter for moral responsibility, punishment, and the other things, are the coarse grained ones and not the fine grained ones. But is that even true? I mean, if someone steals something from a store, they, they've obviously gone into stores and not stolen things, so they have the coarse grain capacity to not steal. Yeah, unlike, say, some compulsive kleptomaniac or something. Yeah, some expert witness comes up and says, well, at a fine grain, somebody had given her some drug that made her a kleptomaniac, or just at a fine grain, she has this disease called kleptomania. They might or might not get away with that, depending on the jury. But but you, you take my point that, um, in fact, the way we... I would say two things. In fact, the way regular people... Think about blame and uh, punishment is that um, to say that they are blameworthy means that the behavior could have been different. I would say that, but and let's actually let's put that aside for now because it's so different from what we're talking about now. But but even at a, even at, at, in the sense of kind of professional adjudication and the allocation of responsibility, it often does come down to pointing to fine-grained causal forces that account for the bad behavior. People are let off the hook on the basis of that kind of testimony. So, in fact, we don't think that uh, the question of moral blame is confined to the coarse level of causal analysis, right? Compatibilists will say, if you look at the considerations which in high-stake com- high-stakes contexts like the law or ordinary contexts like everyday life that we regard as getting people off the hook. They're pretty, they block fairly coarse-grained abilities. So what gets you off the hook under the law? You kill someone, let's suppose. If you were um, out of your mind, if you had the kind of mental illness at the time, that substantially disable your capacity to control your body or to reason correctly, then you're off the hook. So in that case, you lacked the coarse-grained capacity to appreciate what you were doing or the reasons for not doing it and so on. That gets you off the hook. Um, if somebody had a gun to your head, that gets you off the hook for other reasons. That is... Sure. Yeah. Sometimes it's a coarse grain excuse. It, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's it's a, it's coercion. It's coercive in it. If it's coercive in an obvious sense, that gets you off the hook. Right. But the fine grain stuff, as a matter of ordinary practice, never does. In order to get someone off the hook, you need to be able to show that. The right thing to say about them was, in the circumstances, they lacked the capacity to do what they should have done. And when we are talking about those capacities, we tend to be talking about 
the kinds of horseplay and ordinary capacities that we were talking about before. The kleptomaniac has a defense to theft. If you tried in a real court to run the determinism defense, you wouldn't be allowed to give it a shot. You wouldn't be allowed to get it up before the judge and say, there's nothing funny about this guy, there's nothing abnormal about this guy, he had all of the normal capacities for self-control that people have, but he stole, he lives in a deterministic universe, so he was determined to steal. No, you wouldn't get off with that, uh, as a matter of fact, Um, but uh, I'm not willing to defer to the the philosophical logic of, jur- of, of members of juries any more than I am of the many philosophers who believe in compatibilism. Um, the, the, I, I mean, I, I guess I, but, but I think there are versions of fine grain exoneration that have, that have been granted. Uh, I mean, we don't need to belabor this, but uh, it just seems to me that uh, y- you're saying in under the circumstances they could have done otherwise is a true statement, so long as we don't define circumstances comprehensively. That's right. That's and right. I would think philosophers above all should want to not have this fuzzy little definition of circumstances where, with circumstances, oh, the ones that allow us to say they're morally responsible. Wait a second. That's a little circular. I mean, you know, like, uh, okay, fine grain versus coarse. At what grain do the circumstances start mattering? At the, at the, you know, at the level of the millimeter? I mean, come on. Good. So what I said, I keep saying good as if you've fallen into some trap. That's not what I meant to say. When I, I said take very, it to mean I'm a brilliant student, so don't worry. That's the way I've been taking it. Um, when I said at the beginning that I think the question of compatibilism is hard, this is part of what I meant. We could have one system of norms or rules for determining when people are liable to blame and punishment that requires only coarse-grained capacities to do the right thing, to do otherwise. Or we could have a set of norms or rules that requires the fine-grained capacity to do otherwise, the ability to do otherwise, holding absolutely everything about the antecedent circumstances fixed. Mm -hmm. Which rules, in fact, govern blame and punishment that's a substantive ethical question, not one that can be settled by definitions. No, but I would point out that, to get back to what I alluded to earlier, I think the intuition of the average person, and I'm not here to defend this intuition, actually, but, I'm gonna, but, but I do think that the way the intuition of the average person works about moral responsibility is that if you can convince them that under all the circumstances that, that there was really no chance that the person could have done otherwise, I think they become very skeptical about the justice of punishment. I, I think, of course, the average person just doesn't, doesn't think this, this stuff through much, but I think their intuition is that the reason that it's okay to punish the person is because the behavior could have been otherwise. And if under all considered circumstances, under circumstances comprehensively considered they in fact could not have done otherwise then that then under that intuition the 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 punishment is not justified i i again i'm not i'm not defending that intuition and and maybe that's something we're talking about but but i but but the way my reaction to compatibilism has always been like Okay, fine. You've you've defended the existence of free will in some sense, but it's not a sense in which any the average person out there would actually be interested in. Yeah, in fact, you can get 
you know, there is some empirical work on what ordinary people think about the free will and determinism question. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with Eddie. Is it Namius? Do you yeah. know that name? Yeah, yeah. On on this very, people can refer back to that. We can link to it. But yeah, I believe you can get ordinary people to say just about anything if you put the question right. He said he that his work has been subject to that criticism, but uh, or some criticism. But um, so uh, so you're not here to appeal to what the I see. So you're you're saying. Let's not even bother talking about what people think because what they think depends on how the question is asked. Yeah, let me see if this helps. Um, so think about the um, things that by ordinary standards do get you off the hook. You were paralyzed, you were out of your mind, you were in chains, whatever. Those things entail that you couldn't help it and are therefore off the hook. Notice something about all of those excuses. In those circumstances, we think, The person couldn't have done the right thing in the sense that if he had tried, he would still have failed. If you're in chains, if you try to get up, you don't get up. If you're paralyzed, you try to get up, you don't get up. So sometimes when we say that the person can't do something, we mean, or at least imply something like that. Notice that determinism as a sort of general purpose excuse doesn't have that implication at all. You're not walking right now. If determinism is true, it was settled in advance that you wouldn't be walking right now. But it's not true that if you tried to walk, you would fail. If you tried to walk, you would easily succeed. Well, yeah, if we define, yeah, tried as those circumstances that would give rise to your walking. I mean, you set yourself to it. There's the kind of thing that you can, uh, it's not trivial that if you tried to walk, you'd succeed. If you're you're paralyzed, that's not true. You're not paralyzed. Maybe you should talk about what's distinctive about your view. And then if we have time, I'd actually like to get into the very, the, the intuition I alluded to, the common intuition uh, that connects free will and, blind, and and the justice of punishment to begin with. That's, that's something we take for granted, but I think it's kind of a human instinct almost, and it's not clear to me that we should. And there's kind of a related thing that's a hobby horse of mine, which is that the intuition that if you can explain um, that if you if you if you set out to explain why people did something bad, you are trying to exonerate them because this intuition impedes a lot of just clear rational analysis of why bad things happen that I think it would be in our interest to conduct. But that aside, maybe we'll have time for those kinds of questions uh, and and to talk about the mystery of it all. <laughs> period. Uh, uh, but um, but first, why don't you give us your distinctive take on compatibilism and see if I can comprehend it. I mean, I had enough trouble. <laughs> I don't know why I think I could. I can't even comprehend compatibilism, but go ahead. Well, earlier I said that one line I've got is that uh, even if compatibilism is correct, or even if there is some account of free will that somehow squares free will with the facts of physics so that we can be free in the world we live in. It could be an incompatibilist, indeterminist account. Even if we are free, there are further questions about whether we are properly blamed and punished for what we do. Right. Um, So we could go down that road, or I can give you a story which might... Let me try something else. This is something that I've just been thinking about lately, so I'm not sure how how convincing I can make it, but 
uh, in the interest of putting um, cutting-edge philosophy on display. Think about it like this. If we believe in moral responsibility, we think that by acting wrongly, by hurting someone or breaking the law, you can change your moral condition. Before you do it, it would be wrong to punish you. After you do it, it's okay to punish you. So you change your moral status, what it's permissible to do to you by acting wrongly. That's what a believer in moral responsibility thinks. In that respect, acting wrongly is like other things we take an interest in and seem to understand a bit better. So, for example, consider consent. When you consent to medical treatment, you also change your moral condition. Before you consent, we can't operate. After you consent, we can. Or take promising. Before you make the promise, you're free to have lunch with whoever you want. After you make the promise, you have an obligation that you didn't have before. So consenting is one of those things where through a voluntary action, you change your moral condition. Promising is another thing where through a voluntary action, you change your moral condition. And if moral responsibility is real, so is wrongful action. Mm -hmm. They're all exercises of what philosophers sometimes call normative powers. The power to change your rights, your obligations, and your liberties by voluntary action. Now think about this. People get all worried about um, whether determinism undermines moral responsibility. They don't get so worried about whether determinism undermines our power to consent to medical treatment. Um, they, yeah, I've never heard anybody say that. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Or whether determinism neutralizes the moral force of promising. I've never heard anybody try to get out of a promise by saying <laughs> I was compelled by at a fine grain level of causality to make the promise. Exactly. But notice that there are things that can get you out of a contract or that can get you out of consent or they can neutralize the moral force of consent if you were out of your mind at the time, if you didn't know what you were doing, if someone had a gun to your head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So lack of control, lack of understanding, lack of uh, ordinary liberty, those are things that neutralize the moral force of consenting and promising, and those are a lot like the things that by ordinary standards neutralize the moral effect of wrongdoing. Right. that neutralize the normal tendency to be blameworthy if you do something wrong. They are. So here's what I'm thinking. Let's try to ask why it is that those kinds of gross incapacity and interference neutralize the moral force of consenting and promising, whereas fine-grained determination doesn't. Okay. Do you want me to give one possible answer? Well, this is a super deep question, and there is no standard off-the-rack answer to this sort of question. Maybe you underestimate me. (laughs) Oh, I I mean, uh, I I don't have one either, but here's what I'm inclined to think. Suppose we're sitting around trying to set the rules for when promises are going to be binding or when consent is going to be effective. Right. We know in advance we want promises to be binding sometimes and consent to be effective sometimes because that's extremely valuable for us collectively, to be able to give consent and make promises. Right. And then we say, 
We want to give people as much control as possible over when they change their normative condition, their moral condition, by giving people license to touch them or operate on them, or by binding their future conduct by making promises. We want to put you in the driver's seat as much as possible for when you change your moral condition in those ways. It's not valuable to you to have the ability to do that when you're out of your mind or when you're under duress or when you have been uh, fraudulently misled. Control under those circumstances doesn't do you any good. But under other circumstances, giving you the control over whether other people can operate on you and so on, that's a valuable thing for you. So we're going to arrange the rules so as to give people maximal meaningful control over how their moral status is affected by the things they voluntarily do. That's why we wouldn't pick rules that allow people who are literally insane to make binding promises. But we would pick rules that allow ordinary people, even if they're determined in this fine-grained way, to make binding promises. That's the best set of rules for promising, in the sense that it gives people the most control over their obligations and the ways other people can treat them. And does that take you somewhere further? Suppose that's a good story or the beginnings of a good story about why the rules governing promising and consent are the way they are. Mm -hmm. They are that way because those rules are the rules we would all agree to in advance if it were up to us. They're rules the individual can make use of. It's not a useful rule that you'll be punished for not showing up for lunch if somebody has a gun to your head and is going to kill you because you're, gonna, you're never going to show up for lunch under those circumstances. That's right. And, it, and we collectively wouldn't in advance want rules like that. Those wouldn't be the rules that give us the most control over. Well, see, that, that, that I mean, I want to pause here and say that that's the other angle you can look at, I think, all of this from. I mean, uh, you know, as has been noted, I think our intuitions about free will as they pertain to when people can be punished and not punished map on pretty well to considerations about when punishment will, in fact, be useful in deterring future behavior. I mean, similarly, you know, if you say to the bank teller, uh, you know, you're going to prison for giving the, the, the robber the money, uh, even though the robber had the gun to your head, that's not very well used punishment because it's not going to influence the behavior of any future bank teller under those circumstances. They're still going to give the robber the money. And and in general, I would say, and I'm sure you've thought about this, is, is that, um, you know, our intuitions turn out to be from a social level actually pretty fortuitous because they map onto to the set of incentives a society would set up in order to maximize the utility of punishment. Now you could carry that into the other realms you just brought in, like like, you know, when is someone obliged to fulfill a promise to go to lunch? Another way that's another way of saying when are we allowed to apply normative punishment to them? blame them for, you know, uh, dish out social retaliation for failing to fulfill an obligation. So, I mean, this is 
kind of complementary, this level of explanation for that pattern, right, is kind of complementary to and related to the explanation you've articulated, right? I mean, for starters. Good. So there are two versions of the story I was just telling. One says the rules that really govern these things are the rules, the general acceptance of which would have best consequences. That's the line that you were just describing. Right. The other story is the rules that govern these things, consenting, promising, and punishing, are the rules which ex ante give individuals maximal control over their own rights, obligations, and conditions. And those are not the same thing. Maximal meaningful control. Those are not the same thing. So consider, here's an empirical possibility. Um, if you abolish the insanity defense, you will wind up punishing some people who are out of their mind when they committed the crime, and that may be, at the individual level, wasted punishment. But you'll deter some people who might have been hoping to squeak in with an insanity defense if they got caught. Probably unlikely, but you might think it could turn out that if we're interested in maximizing social utility, the best rule abolishes the insanity defense because you get more deterrent bang for your buck with a clean rule like that that doesn't have any loopholes. If we're that kind of rule utilitarian, then we'll think there's nothing wrong with punishing people who are severely mentally ill because a rule that allows that is the rule that has the best consequences. Mm -hmm. On the story that I was telling, that sort of argument isn't pertinent because a rule that allows punishment of the seriously incapacitated is one that takes whether you trigger criminal punishment to a substantial degree out of your hands. Because if you're crazy and you're driven to commit a crime, then you'll be triggering punishment in ways that weren't relevantly under your control. So a rule that recognizes an insanity defense will have a secure justification if you think of things in the way I was suggesting, a less secure justification if you think of things in consequentialist terms. Yeah, I mean, I would say I think the consequentialist story, the idea that our, these intuitions about blame uh, uh, pretty consistently serve the, the kind of social utilitarian goal of just dishing out punishment in an efficient way, I think that story does depend on for it to be a really uh, very successful story depends on assuming we actually always know why people did things. Uh, ironically, you know, since part of this is presupposing that we never do, but, um, but I think because if you, if you admit the kinds of cases you said where, well, the person can fool us about whether they were insane, they can fool us about it. To that extent, the story falls apart. Um, I still think it's possible that, um, well, I mean, various things are possible. One, uh, and I guess I'll stop there, but, um, so, so anyway, you're arguing that these two stories, your story about maximizing, uh, a certain kind of, I don't know, autonomy or something at the individual level is different from maximizing a kind of efficiency at the social level. Uh, anyway, you're standing by that story and certainly to the extent that we admit things like the insanity defense and get fooled by them, you see the distinction. Right. And so now the idea would be, if this is where the, um, the real moral norms governing punishment and the rest 
are grounded, if they are the norms that, if generally accepted, would promote the goals of the practice while securing maximal autonomy to individuals, then we have a compatibilist story. Because, well, but, but don't we still have a consequentialist story? I, I mean, yeah. in other words, aren't you still justifying this conception of blame on grounds of its practical consequences? The view mixes that sort of forward-looking consequentialist thinking with the kind of thinking that we were engaged in before. The question was supposed to be, is it fair to blame or punish people if they were determined to do what they did? Are you violating someone's rights or treating them in ways that they have reason to complain about if you punish them given that they were determined? The proposal here is, Questions about how it's fair to treat people or whether you're violating someone's rights are to be answered by asking, stepping back now, which allocation of rights would best promote autonomy and the other goods that are achieved by punishment and the other practices that we're talking about. So if the story is correct, you are not violating anyone's rights or treating someone unfairly when you punish him if that punishment is warranted by the system of punishment that does the best job of assigning autonomy and control to individuals and furthering the other goals of punishment. Okay. So so I find this, go you've got to tell some story about what fairness is and where the rights that are in question come from. If you want to know whether you're violating someone's rights when you punish them, this sort of story may have legs. And if it does, it would be a kind of a real defensive compatibilism against some of the intuitions that are completely real that you have on the, on the other side. Okay. But this is, your, this is the latest version of your distinctive. This is like a new version of your distinctive take on compatibilism, which leads you to the same conclusion, I gather, which is that... Uh, Punishment is something we should always be skeptical of thinking was just, even though it may be or something, or? If the story I was just telling can be made to work, and this is really pretty raw and speculative at this point, if that story can be made to work, then the objection will not be that punishment is unfair because we're determined. That'll be a non sequitur. That won't be true. One can still be skeptical about the justification for blame and punishment for some of the other reasons that I alluded to. I don't know how much you want to get into. This won't take very long. Okay. Suppose you've got someone who has got as much free will as anyone could have and the kind of free will that puts him in a position to be responsible for his actions, but... Let's say he is a slaveholder in a completely homogenous slaveholding society of the sort that existed in the ancient world before it had occurred to anybody that there was something seriously wrong with slavery. For a long time, it was taken for granted by everyone that slavery is just the way you do things. And it's unfortunate, but not an injustice if you hold slavery. Take a slaveholder in that sort of context. He 
buys and sells people, he beats his slaves, he does awful things. He does these things of his own free will, because we've stipulated that he's got as much free will as anybody could possibly have. Is he morally responsible? Well, that's a hard question, and the answer isn't obvious. Uh, what, what do you, I mean, do you have a, does it make sense for us, looking back or looking on, out on him, well, well, you could say that really, okay, he had free will, but realistically, he could not have done otherwise. In a certain sense, his behavior was, was determined by his environment, because even given free will, given the fact that no one had even raised the possibility that slavery was bad, this is like, you know, Greece circa 800 BCE or something, um, the, uh, if Greece existed then, the, the, um, uh, he co- couldn't have done otherwise, right? I, I mean, you could, you could say that. You could say that, but suppose we suppose we don't. If he had tried to do otherwise, he easily would have. If it occurred to him to do otherwise, he could easily have acted on those thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it could even be that if he had just taken a second to think, how would I feel if somebody did that to me? He would have realized that slavery, that's pretty unlikely, but it's entirely possible that it was in every relevant sense in his power not to do these things. Mm-hmm. He just did them because he wanted to and didn't see the reasons against it. Still, we have some reluctance to think of him as fully responsible for what he did. And you might think that's because two things need to be true of you in order for you to be responsible. It first needs to be the case that you could have done otherwise in some strong sense. But it also needs to be the case that you could have appreciated the reasons for doing otherwise. Or that you we're in a position to know that you should have done otherwise. And this guy in this totally homogenous environment, not in a position to know by any reasonable standard that he had reasons for doing something completely different. There seem to be two ways of being off the hook. I couldn't help it. And I didn't know. I didn't realize Now, that's not going to get everybody off the hook because most people aren't operating in circumstances where they do something wrong, but nobody around them has any idea that the thing is wrong. But this is the thin end of a wedge that I think is available to generate doubts about responsibility, even in ordinary circumstances around here that are independent of the free will question. Yeah, I mean, the hardcore determinists would say that those two categories resolve into one. Uh, uh, to, to, to not not know is just another way of uh, describing the, the brain chemistry that meant that you couldn't help it. Um, but uh, but certainly uh, you're on the same page with that determinist in that they want to sow doubts uh, about the, the 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 validity or the justice of punishment. Um, leaving aside the question of whether the punishment should be exacted. Um, so, right. okay. So I can see that. So, right. So I, I think, go ahead. When you've got someone who's done something wrong and you want to know whether it's okay to blame them or punish him. One question you can ask yourself is, Did he know, as he was acting, that he shouldn't have been doing this thing? 
that he couldn't justify what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the answer to that question will be no. In the moment, the reasonable thing to think about someone, you know, a terrorist, for example, or, you know, some guy who's cheating on his wife because he's somehow persuaded himself that it makes sense to do it in the circumstances. In all of these cases, the right thing to say about the guy is that as he's acting, he doesn't know better. That, that, yes, that, would, that would apply to a lot of bad behavior because people are very good at convincing themselves they should do it. But anyway. Right. So, so that's not the excuse. The excuse is not he didn't know better. Now we ask if that's what we've determined. He didn't know better. Could he have known better? Should he have known better? Mm-hmm. Is it his fault that he didn't know better? And as soon as we start asking that question, we go down a very obscure sort of rabbit hole. Because now we start thinking about, here's this guy acting in the throes of a kind of moral delusion. As he's acting, he thinks it's okay for him to be doing what he's doing. How did he get himself into this pickle? Is there something he should have done beforehand to forestall this delusion? Or did he just fall into it? If he just fell into it, then I think he starts to look more like a victim of circumstances and less like a fully culpable wrongdoer. But in real cases, it's very hard to distinguish the person who just fell into a kind of local delusion and the person who, at some point, should have done something to prevent this and didn't. And you agree that the determinist says that there's actually no distinction between those two, and you're, you're, you're just being misled by casual language. Just... Yeah, absolutely right. So what I'm trying to do is generate another route to doubts about responsibility that even someone who buys free will compatibilism might feel the force of. So you don't feel the force of free will compatibilism, so you don't need this argument. You're right about that. But someone who uh, I see who thinks the world has been made safe for free will might still think, ah, but for all I know, all of these people I'm inclined to blame are acting from local, transitory, blameless, moral delusions. Right. And then we shouldn't blame them either, unless the delusion is their fault, and who knows about that. Right. Okay. So, uh, and, but then your earlier thing was something you're just thinking through now, yeah. almost in real time. You exactly. haven't written, you haven't written it up yet. Is that right? That's correct. So people are seeing cutting edge philosophy in real time on this show. Where else? Does Joe Rogan do this? No, <laughs> no. Uh, so, um, so that's great. The, uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, in the brief time, that I guess we have left. What else should we say? I mean, don't, isn't it your intuition that our, the difficulty we have settling this whole free will determinism thing, and as I said, having two sets of intuitions about it, really. You reflect on your own behavior, and it seems like you have free will. You reflect on the world out there, and it seems like you don't. Excuse me. Um, and uh, the, uh, um, don't you think that the problem we have with this has something to do with the mystery of consciousness and the mind-body problem? I mean, like, may it be that if we could solve one, we'd have solved the other? <laughs> I think they're slightly different. 
So suppose we solve the mystery of consciousness and we could explain why we're sentient and why it's something that it's, there is something that it's like to be you right now. That's compatible with your having the kind of totally passive mental life that, I don't know, a sea slug might have. You, you mean having subjective experience is compatible with that? Having subjective experience is compatible with being totally passive, totally inert. Well, is it? I mean, that's almost like you'd have to be a panpsychist to say that, wouldn't you? Or maybe not. I don't know. I, was, I mentioned the sea slug. I was imagining, imagine some sort of organism that's rooted to the sea floor that doesn't have to do anything in order but to... But it eat. responds to inputs. It does, it does do something in response to informational inputs from its environment, right? It registers its environment, but it doesn't move. It doesn't move? Right, because the nutrients just waft over it. It doesn't even have to open its mouth. Its mouth is just sitting there open. I, I, eyes. I, I think we may hear from the sea slug uh, interest group uh, <laughs> about the way you're characterizing sea slugs, but fine, for now we haven't. You know, I, I wouldn't know a sea slug if I... <laughs> That's what it's like. I was just making that up. Okay. Um, the, the philosophical point is supposed to be sensory consciousness could be a totally passive matter. So if we understood that kind of consciousness, we wouldn't yet have touched the mystery that you were alluding to before, which I think is the mystery of how activity is possible. Conscious activity, which is a little different from consciousness, period. I'm not sure I, I buy that assertion. I mean, I would think that uh, conscious one one version of consciousness, subjective experience, is that it's a product of being an information processor, and information processors take in informational input, uh, and you know, even if it's just a plant, like see, you know, sensing where the sun is and tilting a leaf toward the sun or whatever. You have to do some kind of minimal information processing to be conscious. And if you're doing information processing, even in the sense of uh, getting informational input and making any kind of physical adjustment in response to it, even the expulsion of a molecule, um, then you're not purely passive. If you imagine a, you know, suppose the thermostat, in your office is conscious in the sense that it can feel things warming up and feel things cooling down. Uh But the activity it takes, the transition where it turns the furnace on and off, that doesn't register its consciousness at all. That's just like digestion or something like that. Something that just happens downstream from its sensory states. Wait, what is it that happens downstream? The actual action of responding? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so its sensory states may cause various things in the external world, like the thermostat, uh, the furnace turning on and off. But it's not active in the sense that nothing, it doesn't, in consciousness, initiate any change in the external world. Its conscious states are all just passive responses to the environment. That thing, which I just made up, raises the mystery of consciousness. How could it be conscious at all? But no one would credit it with free will because it's not a center of conscious agency. That's a, a special case of the mystery of consciousness. 
And uh, I mean, although you could, if you're uh, a determinist and an epiphenomenalist, say, yeah, what you don't understand is that that thermostat is us. I mean, you know, that, that is the way it works. It's just that our, our machinery is more complicated. Right. But we have experiences of activity. This is really mysterious and elusive. We have, uh, we experience activity. Yeah. We experience ourselves as initiates. As being agents. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, well, of course, I mean, you can only, I mean, who knows? I mean, for all I know, having the experience of agency is only possible if you're an organism that can articulate the experience. I mean, who knows what the connection of that is to language or anything else? Who knows? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, Can I quote you on that? Who knows? Oh, please, let, let that be my most famous saying. Who knows? Um, so uh, anything else you want to... Um, I, I mean, it's so mysterious. Uh, <laughs> it's also mysterious. Um, anything else you want to say about anything we've said at all? So suppose we're, we are where we in fact are, puzzled about uncertain about how responsible action could be possible at all. It's a model. We don't have a clear view, which would make the world safe for, we're working on it, but we don't have it. That would make the world safe for um, a confident judgment that people are responsible for what they do. Mm-hmm. How should we take that bit of philosophical uncertainty into account, not just in designing policy, like policies of criminal justice, but in ordinary interpersonal interaction? We are constantly, in little ways, holding people responsible for what they do. Like when you get pissed off at the guy who's driving too fast down your street, that episode of indignation is a way of holding the guy responsible, thinking of him as morally responsible for what he's doing. Um, If on reflection you're uncertain about whether he could possibly be responsible for anything, does it follow that we ought to be in the business of inhibiting all of these large and small forms of holding people responsible until we have a clear review about whether anybody really is responsible. Well, I mean, one thing I'd say is, of course, the guy driving down the street, you really usually don't have the opportunity to administer, you know, negative sanction or any kind of punishment. But assuming you did, then I would say, even if you're a determinist, given that driving fast endangers the kids in the neighborhood, uh, you want to do the things that a, that a, an indignant person would do, whether or not you really want to feel the indignation. But again, in my mind, it comes down to these kinds of pragmatic considerations. If it was a person driving uh, to save somebody's life, and that's why they were driving fast, and those are the only circumstances under which they'll do it, that's that's different as a practical matter. Um, although you might, you know, just as a demonstration project to deter others, you might want to jump up and down and say, don't you agree that person's a jerk? Yeah, I, don't know, I think but, a lot but, of the... Yeah. It may be true that a lot of the outward stuff that we normally think of is justified by the idea that people are free and responsible would be justified anyway. On the grounds that it's, you know, indispensable for producing good consequences. Mm-hmm. But the inner stuff, the way you feel when you hold someone responsible, that really is sensitive to whether on reflection you think the person is responsible. Totally. So how, how do you manage your inner life, given this uncertainty about responsibility? I think that's a substantive... 
Oh yeah, and the and the and the kind of you know the kind of uh, Buddhist view is that uh, you should avoid the internal. I don't want to oversimplify, but 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 that I, I didn't even know that this is explicit in Buddhism. But there's a very pragmatic character to the conception of punishment in Buddhism, and the implicit idea seems to be it's always a regrettable necessity, and 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 the practice of things like mindfulness is a way of not letting yourself get overly worked up and yet uh maintaining you know sufficient uh purpose to even in an equanimous state deliver that punishment that needs to be delivered and i think we who aren't um fully acculturated buddhists are torn between on the one hand the idea that these negative emotions are disruptive, upsetting, and we're in some sense better off without them, and the thought that moral commitment and seriousness require that we get worked up about things when they merit it. So if someone is not outraged, indignant at the kind of injustice we see around us all the time, we have the thought that the person isn't paying attention, the person isn't adequately engaged with the moral world. Yeah. And the trouble with these um, skeptical reflections on free will is that they tend to erode that kind of ordinary moral conviction. That's the concern. And that's the conviction. It leaves um, the best without all conviction and the worst full of passionate intensity. Right. Um, Which is from the second coming, right? Right. Um, the uh, yeah, that is the concern. I mean, as a practical matter, I think people have so much trouble letting go of their retributive instincts that, like, I I, I wouldn't worry about a, uh, a crisis afflicting America's juries anytime soon. But um, but uh, but yeah, that is the longstanding concern, and and it is a challenge as as uh, if you're going to really get into it and think about it and start entertaining serious doubts about free will it is it is it it becomes a little more challenging to support the administration of punishment that may be socially necessary right and i think there's there is a safe retreat from that so whatever we do about managing our emotions and our feelings of indignation there is a way of understanding punishment as a necessary evil it does seem to be built into criminal justice systems in uh yeah in northern europe which is our sort of in so many ways, our moral beacon. Our moral beacon. And uh, you can run a system of criminal, criminal punishment like that. We don't know if it's your fault. We don't care if you're a bad person, but we need these rules. So we're with sort of minimum of fuss and a maximum of humanity. going to impose penalties for antisocial activity. You can run the world like that. And uh, as far as we can tell in a decent society... Punishment of that sort, which doesn't presuppose serious moral blameworthiness, is adequate. So, control. is is it a fact that in parts of Northern Europe, the actual way the law reads, or the or the or the the philosophy, the stated philosophy behind the law, is less retributive? No, I think it's just the understanding of the of the people. law and the prevailing practice. It's much less retributive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's enlightenment. Yeah. And I don't think we are in danger of catching up with them anytime soon. Notwithstanding conversations like this, Gideon, we're doing our best. Um, 
the uh, so thank you so much. We left to talk about. You're you're going to have to come back yet again. I didn't say uh, at the beginning of the conversation that you and I have one conversation online in which we got into a bunch of I don't know mind body and quantum physics. I think and all kinds of stuff. That's there, and and yet there is still more to talk about even after this. True. So we'll have to do this again. Uh, do you want to do any final plugging of anything at all uh, uh, online? Because you know we can link to things that you've written that are relevant to this, and you can you can just give me those links later if you want. But is there anything we've mentioned your textbook? What's the name of it again? Uh, the Norton. The Norton Introduction to Philosophy. Uh-huh. And, uh, let me just mention that again because part of my hope with that book was that it wouldn't just be used in college courses. The people curious about philosophy and about contemporary analytic philosophy in particular, would pick it up to get an intro to the subject and a feel for what's going on. And um, I hope it's useful for that purpose. So how, many, how many co-authors are there? There are five on the second edition. Four plus me on the second edition. So it's Alex Byrne from MIT, uh, Shauna Schifrin from UCLA, my colleague Elizabeth Harmon at Princeton, and Joshua Cohen from Apple University. Uh-huh. Um, so the four of us cover the waterfront. Um, the five of us cover the waterfront. Yeah. Metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of mind, ethics, and political philosophy, all in one book. Okay. Well, if you see Elizabeth Harmon, tell her that she told me once that she would come on this show. Recently, recently she told me that. I'll mention it. Would you? Absolutely. Um, so anything else you want to talk about? I think that's it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And are you vowing to do this again at some unspecified future date? I hereby vow. And What's that? Vows can be morally binding. I guess. Well, I'm also, there is a kind of coercive uh, atmosphere here when I do this. So you could say yes and then later say no if you want, because I'm kind of putting you on the spot. True. Um, so you'll say yes for now. Right. Meaning. Okay. Whatever that means. Yeah. Whatever that means. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kitty. All right. Thank you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.